We're back with Lush Life Podcast, and I am thrilled to be here to tell you that the original London Dry Gin, way back when, was pink. I didn't believe it either until our guest presented me with a taste. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. If there is no distillation, there is no spirit. If there's no spirit, there is no cocktail. Sponsored by Sipsmith, I welcomed Anastasia Miller and Jared Brown to join me at the launch of the first Lush Life Book Club at Oriole Bar in London to discuss their new book, The Distiller of London. Jared Brown is the co-founder and master distiller of Sipsmith, as well as a multi-award-winning drink historian. Anastasia Miller is a multi-award-winning drink historian with 35 years in the publishing industry. Written in code in 1638, the distiller of London protected the distilling craft's mysteries practiced by the worshipful company of distillers. Anastasia and Jared have deciphered these recipes and offer the modern-day reader a glimpse of distilling's evolution as it transformed from medicine to social beverage. Hope you enjoy our in-real-life chat of the origins of gin, original gin, and so much more. But before we jump in, I wanted to remind you there are three more Lush Life book clubs coming. The next one is tonight, when I'll be shaking it up with Mia Johansson, Bobby Hiddleston, and Edmund Weil to discuss their book, Shaken, Drinking with James Bond and Ian Fleming, sponsored by Kettle One. So reserve your seats at oriobar.com slash special dash events. It's free and you get a welcome drink. And now it's time to hear from Anastasia and Jared. We'll be getting your welcome drinks very soon. And when you do, you will assume that you are drinking gin. All right. And um, some of you might know some history of drinks and history of gin. And you will assume that... That gin originally, the idea of gin and the recipe of gin originally came from Holland. Well, guess what? You would be wrong. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Book Club at Oriole. I am so excited to be here. For those of you who don't know me, I write the blog, alushlifemanual.com. And for the past six years, I've been hosting Lush Life Podcast, where I interview people in the drinks industry. I am thrilled today to be here to discuss that alternative fact about Jim with these two legends, and they are legends, Anastasia Miller and Jared Brown. And I am not the only one who thinks they're legends. They, last week, just received the Tales of the Cocktail Helen David Lifetime Achievement Award for all of their work in drinks. So thank you for being here. So... This alternative fact about Jim, okay? We're going to use that as a jumping point into this book, which was written in code in 1638, all right? How did you even start thinking about this book? How did you even find this book? I was searching for juniper in spirit uh, everywhere, always, uh, as a drink historian and as a distiller, I'm always looking for the roots and the origins of juniper distillates. And I found this, oh, 
probably six years ago, six or seven years ago, I think, uh, three o'clock in the morning, and I looked at this recipe and I saw juniper, orange, lemon peel, spice back. It's practically a modern And then he woke me up. Wait, 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 we have to back up there a little. Now, you said you found it. Where did you find it? Was it just online somewhere? Was it behind, under the, the bed? I mean, where did you find this book? Um, I do find a lot of them under the bed. We've got a 1,200-volume library of books on drink back to the 1600s at home. But this I found on Google Books, believe it or not. And why were you looking for History of Juniper? Were you intending to write a book? I couldn't sleep. And now I'm, I'm always looking for more of an understanding of the tradition of distilling with juniper, always looking to have a better understanding of gin. And when, so it, you thought it was important enough to wake her up at three o'clock in the morning? And asked me yeah. if I was awake. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was that important. It was that much of a eureka for him. So. Yeah done that since finding the earliest use of the word cocktail in print pertaining to drink, which was uh, 20th of March, 1798, in the London Morning Post and Gazetteer, page yeah, two, middle column. But there, there, I spent an extra two hours before I woke her making sure that I'd done all the research around it so she didn't just wake up and immediately gazump me by, oh, look, honey, I found something even better. Yeah. As has happened before. Now, now let's get this clear, though. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Josh, would you like me to hold yours? No, you've already held two of my drinks. Thank you. Well, cheers, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, so, yeah, that, that was how we... But this book, this. this book was in code, right? So yes. how did you know what you were reading? Honey, can you decode this thing? Can you figure out what it says? Yeah. Um, It's funny. They actually used a lot of astrological codes. And though we don't normally talk about this, Anastasia is one of the world's top astrologers. Um, Among the other books that we've written together, um, the complete 21st century handbook for... Oh, dear. Oh, my God. You actually forgotten the title. Complete astrological handbook for the 21st century, understanding combining the wisdom of Chinese, Tibetan, Vedic, Arabian, Judaic, and Western astrology. It's a title I normally only use as a test to see if I'm allowed to keep drinking. Uh, It's about 680 pages of, if you really, 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 really want to learn astrology, that's the book to do. But if you don't really, 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 really want to know, don't read it. I would just go with another one, Perfect Match, Discovering Your Soulmate. That's a lot easier. So you found this book. I, I assume that the title was in English, so you knew it was The Snow oh, yeah. of London. Yeah. You opened it up online. A lot, of, a lot of it was in plain English. Certainly the introduction, this attack on the poor quality of distilling, uh, where distilling was unlicensed, and this shout of a need for improving distillation that sounded like it was written a century later, like it was written during the gin craze. So even that was just utterly bizarre reading that they were already seeing these problems. They'd already identified all of the issues and they'd already come up with a 
solution, which was founding the Washington Company of Distillers, the Distillers Guild, which Anastasia will go into. Well, for people who might not know and who haven't read the book and don't know that much about gin history, you know, there's this idea that, and this is super basic, but that William of Orange, and please correct me if I'm wrong, loved Geneva. And when he be, he's from Holland, and when he came over to be king of England, he brought this recipe for Geneva uh, to everyone, or to London, and said, make this. Okay, this is, this is the crib notes of, of it. They're still nodding, so that's okay. And oh, that, that, no, she's not nodding. I'm not so, nodding. It's not nodding. Oh, no, th this is the, this is one of the generally accepted stories. And Invented in 1814, from what I can see in print. We've, we've actually nailed down where the misinformation originated, which is so much fun in our line of work. Is, okay, here's this odd story. Like, uh, the Martinez was the parent of the Martini, and it originated from Martinez, California, where a gold miner came in, paid the bartender a bag of gold dust to buy a bottle and make him a drink, and created it on the spot. And then that evolved into the martini cocktail. We finally worked out that that story was created by a San Francisco ad agency in 1965 promoting beef eater gin. <laughs> well, maybe William of Orange's people, you know, cre created, created this. Get my people on yeah, it, yeah, and I'll exactly. make sure it's mine. Yeah. So, so you found this book online, and um, did you immediately know that it was astrological signs and that they were recipes because he, they called them rules? You knew that immediately. I'm an astrologer. Of course I did. <laughs> no, I meant you. Oh, so to bring it to her. I, I knew enough. He's been married to me for 30 years. Yeah, he knows so. <laughs> I know enough to hand it over to Anastasia very quickly. Yeah. And so then what was the process? I went to the British Library. I got a copy of it. I sat there and went, Okay, this is really going to be fun. Here we go, Junior Spaceman. Let's take a decoding lesson. The actual book, which is sitting at the British Library, has two pages in it that were handwritten decodings. None of this stuff was written in the book. You had to have the handwritten codes in there that there was that said, okay, this is what this means, this is what this means, this is what this means. And having two of them in there meant some, and you could look at the handwriting, it was totally different that somebody had actually hand-tipped these things into this little book. And did you think at that point this may, there may be a recipe for gin in it? Oh, I, I spotted that right off the bat. That, that one just leapt out because the um, ingredients were not in code, but the measures and processes were in code. So I could see from the structure of ingredients that I was looking at a gin formula that just shouldn't have existed. But there were three in there. Yeah. There were two others. They weren't quite as accurate as this yeah. one. Uh, that was just bang on. Well, let's go back to the book for a second. The, the book is a whole. Um, why was there even a need to, uh, and you touched on it slightly, to even create this book? Why did the gentleman who write it, felt, feel that this was the time to have rules. It wasn't the first time. He actually started by, okay. <sighs> Once upon a time, there was a man called Dr. Theodore de Mayer, Torquay de Mayer, 
and he was the first physician to the king. Uh, Which king? James I. And his wife, Anne of Denmark, was the first to actually introduce spirits into the royal court for drinking because the Danish used to love to drink in their court and she imported it with her. But there was a problem because there were apothecaries who were, make, were making the spirits, making the preparations for, for medicines. Nobody was controlling them at the time. Damien said, we have to have controls or people are gonna be making stuff all over the place. I want a monopoly. What a livery means is it was a monopoly on making whatever it was for at least, uh, in, this, in this case, it was until the 1670s. It, it was kind of a problem because they seemed to have it under control. The pharmacopoeia that was, was created was also in code so that people couldn't just buy the book, find the book, and all of a sudden start making stuff on their own. Monopoly is a monopoly. The problem was that apothecaries were so only supposed to do medicine. Yeah, the problem was there was this stuff called water of juniper. And people were saying, oh, I don't feel good today. I think I need aqua juniperi. Well, there were some really smart people who said, you know what? I think we can make this stuff too. If you get a still and you start, you, you can make it. I think we can, we can get around to this. All of a sudden there were distilling shops competing with apothecaries. You needed a prescription to go to an apothecary. You didn't need one to go to a distilling shop. By the time the, the Worshipful Company of Distillers was established, there were 200 distilling shops, legal ones, in London alone. And they needed to keep their secrets. So both the Pharmacopoeia Londonesis was written in code and in Latin. And this one was written in code, but written in English, so these poor men who never learned Latin could actually keep up with their business. That's why this was done. So they created the Worshipful Company of Distillers. Yep. And was it difficult for these other 200 to get in? Did they, I mean, I assume it was a quite exclusive membership. Just slightly. Yeah, so that they could keep control of everything and cha-ching yes. and all the money. Yeah. Um, so and you had to take an oath. You had to promise you were going to pay attention to the rules and regulations in the book. The majority of them had already started their businesses as vinegar distillers because it was a really big business in London to sell vinegar for ordnance, for weaponry, that you'd cool off your weaponry with vinegar. And they had a big business going and taking stale beer from the Worshipful Company of Brewers and making it into vinegar. This new side business was the thing that said, okay, we really need to have our own monopoly. It can't just be you're an apothecary. We have to have one too, and let's start making this stuff too. Was it just for money, or do you think that what the others, you know, the 200 others were just creating was killing people, was tasted horrible, was bad for them? Oh, it was bad. It was terrible. Oh, because it, was they do, it was more than terrible. It was murderous. Because they do lay it on thick in the book, by the way. And they um, mean it. Some of the quotes bit. are, you know, it, it's... They say exposed to imminent danger, abuses, evil. I mean, they really. Vitriol, turpentine, sawdust. Now, distilling wood alcohol and selling selling that in your drinks, and and that did happen in places that didn't worry about repeat custom. If you're in a high traffic tourist area, it 
they weren't coming back anyway, so you might as well give them their final drink. <laughs> so, they, so, so they are being truthful in the book about oh, that. Absolutely, much. it isn't just yeah. about control. Now, to get into the recipes, or as they're called, the rules, there are a lot here. I'm just going to read a few. So, the, and they're all called aqua. And they have, I'm just going to read the English, the aniseed water, angelica water, wormwood water, clove water, marigold, caraway, cinnamon. A lot of them have sugar in them. They all have sugar. They all have sugar in them. Some. And waters were strong waters, alcohol, but they all had sugar in them because they were called sweets. It was a legal term because eventually, not when they first did the first did the livery, but or when distillers first started, but there was a point where legislation said, "Hey, we can't make any money off these guys because these these spirits that have sugar in them are not really in context with what we're charging excise for." So we're going to call these sweets. Uh, two pieces of legislation actually made specific rules of what you could do with these sweetened spirits all the way up to the mid-1800s. That's how long it lasted. So since they have these, what I would gather are expensive ingredients. Very. Okay, that, I guess that, I should turn that around and ask that a question. I assume that these are expensive ingredients. Very. And where, you know, it is 1600s. Were they just all imported? Did they find anything that was local or use anything that was local? Oh, to there, okay? there were so. some local ingredients. For instance, in the recipe that we're focusing on, um, there were quince pairings and cock's pippin apple pairings used in the district. And this is the first spot that I've ever seen these used. And immediately went into our own garden where we've got quince, and we've got Cox Pippin, and took the pairings and distilled them. And it was a remarkable flavor. So they knew what they were doing, so, I guess. Absolutely. And it, it, was, it was, we have a rule in the distillery, nothing leaves the lab till it answers a simple question. Is it good? And, and that ticked that box immediately. And so who would... Who I guess the only people who could really enjoy these were people with money. That's the difference. Now, you see, this is a fascination. There were two gins. We're going to have an argument in two seconds. Don't worry. He and I do this all the time. That's why they came. They want yeah. the argument. Yeah. You see, hang on now. Gin wasn't called gin until 1850, 1840. Before then, it was something else. It was either Geneva not Geneva, it was Geneva, there is a difference, uh, and, or it was called, my favorite ones, aqua ad crapulum, aqua fructum. <laughs> Don't you love that? I love that one, that's my favorite one. Uh, or aqua ro rosa solis propare. That's hard to say if you're just your basic kid on the street. So it was like, it, the only people who really had stuff like like the, the original gin or, or any of this other stuff, were people who could afford to pay an apothecary for their prescriptions or pay a distiller to do their distilling for them. Can I go even further? Can Absolutely. Okay. Because you see, unfortunately, people don't realize women and monks were the first distillers in England. 
started with the monks. After the monks lost out from the dissolution, thank you, Henry VIII, women were the primary distillers in this country. And they had all these fun books to read, and they were making a lot of spirits. And even Queen Elizabeth was having her maidservants make her spirits. Uh, it, was, it was like there was this whole bourgeoisie and, and, and an aristocracy that had really cool spirits, and the working class had to try to replicate them by making stuff. And I mean stuff. That's, that was, it was a definite economic change. Would then, well, we want the argument. Are you going to argue or should I ask my question first? Go oh. ahead, try me. <laughs> I'll, I'll let her slide on this oh, one. Oh, no, There's no. This is the argument. That's why we're here. There were only, 30 years of marriage. Only two gins, but um, I still say there, there were so many permutations around this concept in terms of the low-quality ones that very quickly led to death as featured in Hogarth's 1751 Gin Lane, or the ones that were good, that were drinkable. And then you get to John Sheridan Muspratt in 1850, who called all six recipes gin. And only one was the stuff that made the gin craze happen, which was the West Country gin that was made with vitriol and turpentine. Uh, and so that one, Ben well, I guess scholars. This kind of touches on the question that I had, which is if the, these official distillers who take the oath are making those spirits, those aqua, um, of all different kinds and selling them to their very rich clients. There must have been people who are making spirits or whatever you want to call it. Also, at the same time, would it be illegally for the people who want to drink alcohol and not be able to afford the ones that are being made? Yeah, and they were people? making it just with juniper or some juniper replicant like turpentine and sticking it into spirit, and it was called Geneva. Geneva, Geneva, rather. Geneva is nothing but juniper and spirit. It has none of the other botanicals that define a London dry gin or any other style of gin. This was one of your discoveries that absolutely blew me away, was finding that during the gin craze, where it was said in so many books that one out of five doorways in London would open into a still. There, there was that much gin production. There was that much gin production, but you found how many licensed stills in London at that time? Only 200. And the rest were actually buying base spirit from... Bristol. And, and it was made out of sugar. So... A, a, Malat it was basically rum. a rum base, <laughs> and they were flavoring it. And so many books said, oh, London gin, yes, that, that's flavored with turpentine and oil of vitriol, sulfuric. And, so we lost um, track of all of it. We really did. And the, the turpentine is just a, a pine distillate, and we've actually tasted a gin made about a hundred and... 20 years ago, that was still made from that recipe. And yes, it, it did taste like paint remover. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, speaking of the gin recipe, the gin recipe in here, um, hold on, let me get my little things. Um, so, it's the aqua fructum. 
Water fruits. Yep. Okay. There's a lot of ingredients, not just the ones that you. So juniper berries, quince parings, pippin parings, I guess lemon pills, orange pills, nutmeg, aniseed, clove. All right, that's just you distill all that. To you, that screams gin when you read this. Absolutely. When, of course, you could rebalance those ingredients and practically make it ouzo. But when you balance those ingredients per the measures that they had, it screams gin. The only problem that I had when I found this, and I brought it to Sam and Fairfax, my co-founders at Sipsmith, and I said, I desperately want to make this one. And I discovered, because we'd just been bought by Beam Centauri, and Fairfax had made this flippant promise that we weren't going to pump up the value of the company by making some flash-in-the-pan product like a pink gin. What and color this, is this? this recipe from 1639 was then infused with strawberries and raspberries and dulcified and as what a recipe is this? It's sweetened. So actually in 1639 they were making pink gin. gin. <laughs> yes. And that is not that's the part that I haven't read to you yet, which is to the spirit ad. A-D-D-E, strawberries bruised, raspberries bruised, stir them well together, and after 10 days, it being clear, may be drawn off. Yeah. So that led right into that. Now, go ahead. wonderfully, and and this I absolutely love because... uh, through our own experimentation, we found seven to 10 days to be the perfect maceration time. If you want to make a raspberry gin, you want to make a home pink gin that will beat the pants off of any commercial pink gin, you buy a punnet, which is 250, 300 grams of raspberries. Put that into a bottle of gin, let it sit for 10 days, and then strain that off and that color will hold for up to five years, a bright Zinfandel rosé color and a beautiful fresh raspberry flavor. And we didn't know they knew it in 1639. They're making pink gin. Now, everyone, as you're sipping your welcome cocktail, you just think that you're sipping normal gin, right? Well, actually, you're not. You are sipping the original gin. And that's why it has a slight pink color, which um, Jared and Anastasia brought for all of you today. So that's kind of a surprise that we had. And we will be tasting it neat um, soon when it comes to you, So, which is really exciting. At which point you'll find a lot of whiskey character to it because they didn't have column stills back then to make a very pure neutral spirit base. Um, so they were only distilling up to about 68%, when today we're taking up to 95%, and then rectifying, redistilling with botanicals. So what you will be tasting is essentially a new make spirit. Anastasia worked out that it was grain, not malt. And even even more interesting was was uh, James Muspratt in it, as I say in 1850 when he wrote his book, kind of alluded to the fact that as far as he was concerned, all British spirits, all as if there were any other British spirits other than 
British whiskey, which there was, and, and British gin, were nothing more than the, the low, low wine fabrications of Scottish and English fabricators of grain spirits. That kind of gives you the hint. It started with new make. And that was, that was the, actually the biggest difference that you could imagine in this world. Imagine if you had an, a, an, a Tory gin made with grain spirit versus a wig gin made with sugar. Kind of a big difference and kind of a big difference about the reaction of it. And it, it, it took a long time for people to realize they were not drinking the same thing if you were talking gin. There was gin and there was gin. Well, which gin did you have? Did you buy it from the girl on the street at the hanging? Or was this something that you actually bought in a shop? And that was the legitimacy. That was actually the difference in professionalization versus illegal booze. Now, a gentleman, John French, wrote, well, translated or whatever you allegedly. want to call it. Allegedly. And in this book, you have as notes the description of what ailment it would help. When someone was buying something from a distiller as opposed to an apothecary, would they be looking for that? No. 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 That was the point of difference. That was the whole point that, that uh, the and had, was is he wanted to make sure that people knew that if they went to an apothecary, they were getting a medicine. If they were going to a distiller's shop, they were buying booze. And that there was a distinct difference between the two. Dr. John French wanted to maintain that all of these were actually medicines because he was being a nice puritanical person versus being willing to admit there were people drinking this socially, even though it had been done since the 1500s. But we were Puritans at the time. You had to be nice. Well, all of the recipes in the book, would people have known, you know, it, would the common person, or I guess should I say the common rich person, know that if I drink this, uh, it would help me with, with that? Oh, most definitely. The number one cause of death throughout history was waterborne pathogens. The only known preventative, palliative, curative was daily consumption of alcohol. I kind of agree. No. And always, drink, <laughs> always, always drink responsibly. It wasn't just adding alcohol. Yes, always drink responsibly. Um, and don't die chi like Tchaikovsky. Ten, ten <laughs> liters of this in a day, and we would stand around helplessly watching you die of a fatal electrolyte imbalance. Take that water. You're always painted as a good guy. Uh, now, now, do you think this was, uh, or the recipes were new in here? So, um, like, this was the latest new cocktail book, they or this was just new. nothing new? Can we go all the way back now? Uh, Maybe yeah, of a course. couple of them, one or two. Most of those came from, uh, actually, were, came through via Germany uh, from a Viennese uh, alchemist named, I love the name, Michael Puff von Schrick. I love that name, Puff von Schrick. Anyways, uh, 1476. And uh, Hieronymus was another person who, who also found the similar recipes. These were all taken from recipes from the 1300s. What was the title of Brunschweig's 1500 book? 
El Liber del Distillato. Distillandi. Thank you. Um, which was translated into English in 1527. By Lawrence Andrew. And this was the first juniper distillate. That, that the English knew about. They were, they were rabid to find out this stuff. Believe it or not, when, when the printing press was invented, the biggest seller after the Bible were distillation books. I mean this quite seriously. Uh, Rochefort's book was 33 editions. Hang on, say that again. Oh. That was fun. Right after the Bible, the biggest selling printed book in the world was Brunswick's 35 editions, 33 editions in different languages. Uh, People were that fascinated with the idea that they could make their own booze at home. And you could. You had a thing called a cold still. It sat on top of a bowl. You stuck that on top of some ashes. And you could distill things. Yeah, it, it, it's been that long and been that early in our, in our nature to want to play with something fun. I mean, it, it, it's like it, it, could, it, it couldn't be more serious. You know, it's funny. I read that in your book. And I made a little note uh, on the side saying, how did they know that that was the biggest selling book then? <laughs> You know, what's there? There was no Amazon to count it, you know? Yeah, but like, guys were they... actually keeping accounts of how, what was being published and who, how, many, how many books were being sold. And it was amazing how many books were sold amongst Germany, yeah, the Netherlands, and England on the subject. It was ridiculous. And we're not even talking about, we're not even counting in what happened in Poland with a book that showed 70 different ways of flavoring vodka, including with juniper, and, and in Italy, which I'm never going to discount. The aid were having fun, too. It's just nobody was translating them in English, so they didn't import the stuff. Well, written in Latin and in code was a bit of a, a challenge, but uh, we have seen a 1186 recipe from the University of Salerno Medical School that could be talking about working with juniper and distilling, but the condensing coil was referred to as a serpens in this. And so when, when you're talking snakes and ladders, we, you can't be entirely sure if it, it really yeah. was distillation. Mm-hmm. So I think everyone has... Uh, oh, we don't have no, any. But, no, we don't have any. Does everybody have Trust a? Me. Everybody have happens. a tasting glass. Every, does everyone have a tasting glass? Okay, we got a tasting because glass. Because we've been talking so much okay. about it, we need to try it already. Okay, if you haven't already. Now give us some tasting notes. Yes, from the job. master. <laughs> I still like this one. I like this, this one, one so much. Um, reached out to Akintoshan. And uh, one of the distillers up there had a load of pure grain distillate rather than malted, just grain, and sent me down a load of that to work with. Um, Had been distilled up to 68%, so that was exactly what they were using in 1638 to make this. So as you taste it, it, it's a bit like a new make whiskey. It's got that breadiness to it in the nose, on the palate. It's got a natural sweetness to it. It still has that soft pine, sweet citrus, 
that is characteristic of Mediterranean juniper. Back then, actually long before the first juniper distillates in Britain, they already knew that the Juniperus communis, which grows subarctic to subtropic all the way around the northern hemisphere, grows, grew best in the North Mediterranean. Here you have the terroir, and to this day you have the terroir that produces the best flavor. Um, English juniper, Scottish juniper, it tastes like moss. It's just not this flavor, but that's what they used. So that's what we used here. And it's not too um, sweet. Even no, though. no. It, it, thankfully, the recipe indicated dulcify to taste. So kept it to that. In other words, it didn't meet the legal requirements of being a sweet. And I'll, I'll confess taking some liberties didn't bruise the raspberries and strawberries. I froze them. Uh, <laughs> We won't tell. Freezing just works. We won't so, tell Theodorus. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Do, do that with your slows as well. It's like hitting each slow with a thousand pins. <laughs> it well, breaks the cell structure. So that that was how this was created. But this, I admit, I didn't set out to make exactly what they were tasting. But I set out to make what, if I handed it to them, they'd recognize and say. Yeah, that's what we were trying to make. Well, I think that's uh, the, an invitation to open it up to all of you. If you wanted to have any, if you had any questions um, for them, don't be shy. Yes, yes. I'm supposed to repeat the question. Does it actually have oh, I just everything in it? Oh, oh, does the, it have the all of this? Is what exactly is in this? Yes. And you've got the recipe in front of you, so please go ahead and read through that recipe okay. one more time. All right, we have juniper berries, quince parings dry, pippin parings dry. Now, it's, it's spelled lemon, L-Y-M-O-N, but I'm assuming that's lemon pills dry, orange with an E, pills dry, nutmeg with two T's, anise seeds, and cloves, that's before distillation. And then strawberries bruised, and actually it says, sorry, it says ras pisses <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead of raspberries. But I'm going with the fact that that's raspberries. Yeah, it's raspberries. <laughs> we, we tried it the other way, it didn't work. Well, I have to admit one thing. One thing I've learned about studying early modern European history at all, nobody could spell. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure what are um, pippin pairings. Oh, it's a type of apple. Yeah, the the Cox pippin apple is simply a variety. It's got a, a beautiful sweet orange character to that particular apple. Uh, anyone else? Any? Yes, Edna. It was so simple. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, the question is, how did you decode the recipe? With pretty much. So you said a little bit more than that, but. Yes. Uh, how did we decode the recipe? It was so simple. I handed it to her. It's like, honey, do you have any time to do this? And I'm like, excuse me, I'm sitting at Oxford doing my second master's degree on distilling, and you want me to do what? 
give me, give me, give me a little time. Of course, a year later, he goes, honey, have you done it yet? No, I haven't had any time yet. I'm still working out whether or not there were women distillers or not. Okay, a um, year later. You think you have time now? Yeah, okay, I've got time now. And then it was like, oh my God, you have got to be joking. Wait a minute, I've got to go, I've got to, go to the library. I've got to go look at this. Wait a minute, I've got to see what, what I love this guy's name, William Y. Worth and John French had to say, because they said that they had decoded it. And I'm like, no, you didn't. You got that one really wrong. Somebody tries this, they're going to have cloves right in their face, no matter what. So, okay. What was that measure? It was up by a hundred times on the cloves. In, in How many cloves can you have in decipher. one still without killing yourself? But you, you found because the the one of the the most available copies of this has nine little dashes in the opening page. You found one that had the word invocators written yeah. above that, those dashes spelled with a Y as the first letter. And that was the key to breaking the Yeah, it was like playing the game of the dancing men. It was, it, it was like a Sherlock Holmes piece because I said, wait a minute, that doesn't equal that, but that equals that. But that couldn't be that because it has to be that. But then that's supposed to be in Latin, but it really isn't that. And of course, I was supposed to be busy working on my doctorate at the time, and I'm like, wait a minute, I got to take time to do this because this is just insane. Now you're still on the, the Oxford Masters. Yeah, well, that took a while too. Uh, <laughs> number two. Yeah, Oxford Oxford Masters number two. But if, uh, but it was it was one of those things where I had to stop and take time and go over it and over it again and go wait a minute that is impossible go back to the library look at what other people said no that's not right either and when we finally looked at it and said okay I think we're ready to try it did you realize column one is for a large quantity and column two is for a smaller quantity so if there was a small distiller shop which one of the guys who, who was one of the founders of the Worshipful Company of Distillers was the physician to the queen. He was Queen Anne's, um, queen Anne's physician. Actually, had opened up a distilling shop across the road from St. James Palace. And he had, he had smaller quantities done up just so he could give them to royalty and to the court versus the stuff that was actually done for mass production. And that was the key because it doesn't say that anywhere in the book as you're looking at small and large quantities. And it was like, okay, so they, they knew what their market was. They really did at that point. And they knew that there was going to be private stuff and there was going to be stuff that distillers are going to sell to whomever walks in the door and go forward a minor fortune to pay for it. Anyone else? Yes? Uh, I have two questions. Yeah. The first one being, um, when you recreate a recipe, uh, do you ever suspect and how would you verify that the ingredients over time from the Middle Ages to now didn't change in their flavor? And then the second one is, uh, were there any like connections between the, the, uh, the spirits and uh, like mental health issues, mental disorders being cured by this kind of alcohol. You take on the first part, I'll take on the second part. Two, two wonderful questions. Very um, um, So it was, when you're looking at an old recipe, how do you know if the ingredient still 
exist or taste the same as they did then? And then the second question was, were there any recipes or rules, as they're called here, to help with mental illness? Uh, And the first one, uh, how do we know that the ingredients are the same today as they were in the past? And what we did was we began looking at exactly how those ingredients were processed in the past, where they were imported from, how they were imported, and exactly what six months on a sailing ship would do to those ingredients versus being air freighted in or grown locally. And with some of the ingredients, there were huge differences. And so you look at some of the old measures of nutmeg, and it's very clear that they were using, or actually cloves even more. Cloves even more. That they were using stale cloves in England. Yeah. Because they would use a lot of cloves. Um, You're talking about cloves that had actually been sitting on a ship for at least six months, not including how, how long they'd been sitting at the dock before then. So they were also saltier than they would have been otherwise. And then sitting in the market, like Covent Market, or out on the docks in the Canary Wharf. For a year. Yeah, well over a year. So they're pretty, pretty old. So if you look at Oxford Nightcaps, uh, which was published in 1827, was the first book entirely devoted to drink recipes. And a fascinating book. If if you want to dive into that one, go to euvslibrary.com. It's a website that we created uh, with a friend of ours to just get all of these books up that we were fortunate enough to acquire and get them up, no password, no branding, searchable across the platforms. Absolutely free. Got about 150 books up there. So dive in. But the cloves in those recipes, they used far more cloves than we would use today. And so we looked at how the cloves were handled versus today, and we had to adjust. But that's the case with any distillation formula then as now, because imagine if we lived in a world where no two cookers performed the same or even remotely the same, what cookbooks would be like. And and that's how it is with distilling. But it's also the organic nature of things, because even if you could get the same grain, and that's pretty tough to do, because when you're talking, especially when you're talking about new make whiskeys, you're talking about barleys. Barleys were different depending on the region you were in. So the organic nature of one barley to another is going to change the flavor of things. We can only approximate what we know, we will never be able to officially replicate any of this, just come as close as humanly possible, even though we have improved grain, we have better better botanicals to play with than we did back then because they weren't sitting around on a dock for a year before somebody bought them. But we come as close as we can. And we pray that we come, come close enough to understand what they were drinking. Oh, that's There's another question about Mental health issues in these formulas. Mental health issues. Uh, People were really too concerned about mental health at the time, or this word well-being. What they were concerned about was your health. 
if your kidneys were bad, if your stomach was bad, if your head was feeling achy, you could have something to fix it. They didn't understand what well-being was. They really honestly didn't. I just finished teaching a class this afternoon on how much disease had to affect what the world had going for it. And no one really knew what to say if you oh, all of a sudden what? They're all adults here. Which? You just said disease, a broad yes. term. Well, I was talking about syphilis and the plague. Uh, I have fun subjects to teach in school. Uh, but it was a matter of people weren't concerned about well-being at the time, at least in the Western Hemisphere. They were not concerned. They did not sit there and think about, even astrologically, they were not sitting and worrying about what the community thought. Yeah, when, you look at, when you look at one end of the hemisphere versus the other end of the hemisphere, one looks at community, the other one looks at self. This was, this was a self-oriented society that created jinn and created most of the Western spirits that we know. If we want to talk about the spirits that were created in the East, that's a completely different story and a completely different understanding of what regionality and organic nature does. So, yeah, it's an impossible question to answer from this well, side. From the European side, not so much, but we found that elsewhere in the world in that same time period, definitely. Oh, definitely. It's just, it's, it's, it's apples to oranges. That's the problem. Yep. Oh, this is a wonderful question. Which humor imbalance <laughs> or deficiency would these waters be correcting? Of course, at that time in medicine, they studied the four humors. And it's called Galenic medicine. Very much, these were uh, anti-phlegmatics. So treating the phlegmatic humor in particular. You're talking about the kidneys, the bladder. In women's complaints, it was supposed to cure cramps. I, I, I found a great version of this in, in, what's the name of it? The Treasury of the House of Euonymus from 1565, where they talk about juniper water being the best cure for the cramps. Ooh, remember this, ladies. It's supposed to help you in the cramps. And what, what was the other women's complaint that... Um, um, it wasn't anxiety, it was something under stimulation. Hysteria? Hysteria. Hysteria, my favorite joke. <laughs> One of the most magnificent things I ever saw on a drink was that it, it treated hysteria. It was like, ooh, this one's orgasmic. <laughs> I think that is the perfect place to stop. No, <laughs> I think so. I think he's just gotten there, right? <laughs> It was a huge thrill and honor to have Anastasia and Jared as guests for the launch of Lush Life Book Club. And thanks so much to the generosity of Sipsmith and the Divine Oriole Bar. And don't miss Tonight with Bond. Then, on Tuesday, October 19th, Olivia Williams, author of Gin, Glorious Gin, and The Secret Life of the Savoy is my guest, thanks to Bullet and Kentucky Tourism. And if that weren't enough, on Tuesday, October 26th, I'll be with Jason Clark, author of The Art and Craft of Coffee Cocktails, and Pippa Guy, Let's Get Physical, sponsored by Tanqueray. Come along if you can, or hear them here. Did all of this make you thirsty? So let's get to our Cocktail of the Week. 
our cocktail of the week is the Archive Highball. We're not expecting you to make your own original gin, so use Sipsmith, of course. Combine all of the following ingredients in an ice-filled highball glass. 40 mils of original gin, or Sipsmith gin. 15 mils of triple sec. 15 mils of ginger syrup. Two dashes of Angostura bitters and 75 to 100 mils of soda water or sparkling water. With a bar spoon, lift the ice rather than stirring to preserve the bubbles in your mix. Then garnish with a lemon twist. You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find all the ingredients in our shop. For those of you who stick around for the end of my show, I wanted to explain my absence this year. My father died this summer, and it has been really tough to start again. He was my number one fan. No matter what crazy dream I followed, he was always there to support me. I miss him. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. It is always appreciated. The music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Next time, we'll be taking you on a big adventure with Bond, James Bond. Until that time... Bottoms up.